Please turn with me to the book of Jonah, chapter 3. We will finish chapter 3 tonight, which will be verses 6 to 10. Jonah has made it to Nineveh. He has uh, done exactly what the Lord has told him to do. Uh, Of course, after the ordeal with the very large fish or whale, whatever it was, uh, he was humbled by this. He learned grace. He learned of God's grace in this. He learned that he himself needed grace. And so when the Lord says to him a second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh and proclaim the message that I'll tell you, Jonah goes. He does not rebel again. He goes to that exceedingly great city, which is a three days walk. He goes about a day's walk, and he begins to proclaim this message of the Lord. Yet in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And then we read that the people of Nineveh believed God. Now, what we're going over this evening is really, of course, the rest of the story that's really demonstrating genuine repentance, what genuine repentance looks like. And that's a question that we must ask ourselves. What does genuine repentance look like? And I have to say this, you know, there are things that, that we're aware of and things that we know of, but then when, when, when other circumstances come up or other suggestions of books, we get delving into them and we learn even more than what we did originally about certain subjects. One in particular from myself is that of easy believism. You know, we talk about easy believism. We've talked about it before. You know, of really just praying the prayer, getting your fire insurance and, and going along and all of that. But really, there was so much more that was to that. that was, that's why it was put into the category of being heretical that I myself did not understand until recently. That men like Zane Hodges and Charles Ryrie would teach people that even if they stop believing later in their life, because they prayed the prayer earlier in their life, that they're still saved and that they're still going to heaven. And there was no genuine repentance. Obviously, if people can turn from the faith as, as the way that many had done, and they were, they were relying on a certain prayer that they prayed, not in anything else, but just in the fact that at one time in their life they had believed and they began to live however they wanted for the rest of their life. Now, what we've got to look at is, is when it comes to exercising true faith in God, what then does true, genuine repentance look like? Because though there are the categories of what the gospel is and what the law is and what the law requires of us and in the sense of what does God command of us upon believing the gospel, this particular blessing of salvation comes to every genuine believer, but what does it look like? Repentance and faith are absolutely together. You cannot separate them, but we have to understand them in different categories. The gospel is all what Christ had done, and then repentance and all of that belongs into the realm of what God commands of us. But even those things that God commands of us is wrought in us by the Spirit of God. So what then does the Spirit of God bring about? What kind of fruit does He bring about? And the fact of the matter is this, that when it comes to those who have true faith in the Lord, 
to receive the very things that God has granted to them in Christ, that there is and will be genuine repentance. Not just a uh, feeling bad at the time or getting an emotion or whatever and then going on with your life however you want. That doesn't exist when it comes to true genuine believers because the Spirit of God brings about the change in them. So what we're going over tonight is what does genuine repentance look like? You're seeing here the fruit of Jonah's preaching, the fruit of what God is doing through this rebellious prophet. And it helps us then to focus in to understand what exactly repentance looks like. It helps us to see the consequences of decisionalism and the easy believism and the danger that people are in whenever we tell them, because you prayed a prayer once in your life, you're good. But you're not. There is no, the, that's, that's an aberrant teaching. If people think because they prayed a prayer, they presume upon God's forgiveness as if it's his duty to forgive them because he prayed the prayer, they're in grave danger. But let's look at this passage. We'll talk more about that as we work our way through this text. But we do see the fruit of genuine repentance here in our passage and the cause of it as well. So let's look at this, <clears throat> this passage together in Jonah chapter 3. If you would please stand for the reading of God's word. And I'll be reading verses 6 to 10 in the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible word of the living God. Let us give our attention to scripture. Verse 6. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly that he may turn from his, his wicked way and from his violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this portion of your word. Thank you for the encouragement that we receive every time we open the pages of Scripture to know that you are truly a merciful God and a gracious God, and a God who not only has began a good work in us, but one who will indeed finish it by your power and by your will. But Father, let us learn tonight. May we rejoice in your salvation and rejoice what it is that you do in our life. Bless the preaching of your word. May it accomplish all you desire. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> okay, so Jonah. He's went through um, a great ordeal. And he's been sent to Nineveh. He finally goes. 
and he's now preaching to the people. Now, you do recognize this, though, that everything that had happened up to this point has all, has all been under the sovereign hand of God. God has ordained everything that has taken place so that even in Jonah's rebellion, you have the salvation of the sailors who were with him. That all this was in the plan of God, even though Jonah himself was in rebellion. <clears throat> but it was through that ordeal that God had prepared Jonah. That he had humbled him, taught him about grace, taught him about mercy and his, and his need for not, not just because he's an Israelite or a Jew, but his need uh, himself. He couldn't rely on the fact that he was part of God's covenant people. He himself individually needed God's grace and God's mercy. And he learned this in, in the belly of the fish. He humbled himself. And we see all that. Now, because the Lord had... had had brought Jonah along in the way that he did and humbled him and taught him about grace and taught him about mercy. He still has much to learn. But at the same time, this prophet has a different mindset as he is going to Nineveh. He's going to go and he's going to preach. He's going to do the very thing that God had said for him to do. And what he's going to preach is going to cause a great uh, whole city Basically, this great repentance throughout this, the, this city of Nineveh that, that is a pagan city, that is one that is vile and wickedness, that is so wicked. So, so much so that the Lord had told Jonah initially that their, their wickedness has come up before me, so go preach to them. This is a vile city. And yet when Jonah goes to preach to them, and he preaches the message to them that God has given... We only read here that he said, yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. But this is most likely a summary of what he said. There were probably other things that he put in there because of the response of the Ninevites and the response of the king. They had to have a little bit more information than what Jonah had just said here. But when you think of the man and God preparing him first, that, that God is using him... In this new, or this, this revived state, if you will, this learning experience that he, has, that he has endured in order to then proclaim the message of the Lord to the unbelieving. And this is so important to understand this because when it comes to, to the people of God declaring the gospel and we in our hopes for people to convert, it must begin with us too that we believe what we're saying and that what we are saying has affected our own hearts. That's what's happened with Jonah. He has believed the word of the Lord. He knows what's going to happen. He's not, he's, it's not as if he's rejoicing over it, but he believes what he's saying because he knows that it's true. And so he then begins to proclaim the word of the Lord to this pagan, vile city, understanding that this is, this is the God who who just granted him mercy and grace, and it could be extended to them. You know, when you look at a passage like Luke chapter 11, for example, it helps to maybe give us a little bit more insight into some of the things that Jonah had said. Because it seems as if Jonah had said much more than what we read here. 
In Luke chapter 11, beginning of verse 29, we read this. As the crowds were increasing, he, meaning Jesus, he began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Now, Jonah was a sign, or in, in the sense of Jonah was a type, a foreshadowing of the resurrection of Christ. But what Jesus is saying here is something a little bit different. Not only to be a type and a shadow of the resurrection of Christ, but Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up with, with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus is acknowledging the fruit of Jonah's labor here. The fruit of Jonah's preaching. And to the, to the fact, too, that Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites. So what that perhaps implies is that in Jonah's preaching, not only is he yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, but perhaps also because of Jonah's ordeal with the fish, that this is also part of his message as to, which, as to what he has said to the Ninevites. This just happened to me as I was in my rebellion, running from the Lord, and yet he had mercy on me. And there's some type of a hope that is with the Ninevites, considering what the king's edict is going to say. So Jonah had been prepared and learned and understood these things before he began to preach them. And how needful that that is, dear friends, that, that the word of God affects us to such an extent that whenever we declare the gospel to others, we truly believe what we're saying. That it has, that it has affected our hearts. And God can use his people to do whatever he desires. Even great things is what Jonah is doing here. So upon Jonah being prepared and Jonah being used by the Lord to proclaim the message, here's the result of it. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. Now there are, there are things here that are demonstrations of genuine repentance. This isn't just a situation where you have somebody that's coming through the city and saying, hey, this particular God over here is saying he's going to overthrow the city. Well, what do we need to do? Well, what do we do for the last God that, that threatened that? What do we do there? That, that's not the case here. This isn't just, a, this, just an outward motion here just to go through something to appease a particular God. And why would the Ninevites, as a massive empire, as what they are, why would they be afraid of the God of Jonah? Why would that have affected them at all? But it did. The king is going to put on sackcloth, this very rough kind of cloth. He's going to sit in the ashes, a demonstration of, of, his, of this expression of grief and of sorrow and of true humility. Not only is it going to be outwardly manifested of what is going on on the inside, but the king is also going to tell the people to, to turn from your wicked ways. 
Now, how do they know what the wicked way is? How do they know what is good and pleasing unless Jonah had said something about it? Otherwise, how would they know in whom to put their trust and in whom that, that they're repenting to without more information from Jonah to say, this is the holy God who has created all things. He had mercy on me. He can have mercy on you. This is, this is the God who is. Again, I don't want to assume things, but at the same time, if we're looking at the implications of what is going on here, Jonah had to have given more information than what's here. And many theologians would agree with that, that this is simply a summary of what Jonah had said. But look at the repentance that is, that is being brought about here. Outward manifestation of sorrow, of grief, of humility. The king is going to do this over the great city of Nineveh. The exceedingly great city, as it is referred to in verse 3. The king is going to wear sackcloth and sit in the ashes. He's going to make a proclamation to all to fast. Fasting as well, the, the, that idea of fasting and, and afflicting yourself. And he says... Let each man, or let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. This is not only an outward manifestation or just an outward ritual that they're doing. This is, this is a demonstration of what's going on on the inside. They believed the word of Jonah. They believed that this God, Elohim, this God is going to destroy the city because of our wickedness. This isn't a situation in which we're going to feel bad because we got caught about something. This is something that is going on on the inside to turn from their evil, to turn from their wickedness. There is a change of mind here, a genuine repenting of what the word means. You're changing your mind. And he says, who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. So within this whole scenario of this repentance of Nineveh, you have this outward manifestation of genuine repentance. You have it on the inside as well, a heartfelt repentance. Let us turn from our wicked way. And then you also have a hope in mercy. There is, there is a hope that the king has here that as a result of the genuineness of their turning from evil and violence, that God would be merciful to them. That's what's happening here. Now, let me read this to you. In the London Baptist Confession, 1689, listen to how they describe repentance here. This is chapter 15 of Repentance Unto Life and Salvation, paragraph 3. This saving repentance is an evangelical grace whereby a person being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin doth by, by faith in Christ humble himself for it, <clears throat> humble himself for it with godly sorrow, detestation of it and self-abhorrency, praying for pardon and strength of grace 
with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in, in all things. So what's he talking about here? He's talking about the same things that are going on here in Nineveh of what genuine repentance looks like. Now, why did this take place? Again, what did the Ninevites have to be afraid of when it comes to Israel's God? This little, this little nation over here compared to the massive empire of the Assyrians? It can only be that the Spirit of God had worked within the hearts of these people to bring this kind of repentance about. It can only be that. They're a pagan society. They're going to believe in whatever gods that they have there. And yet, they're going to sit in sackcloth and ashes and fast and call upon God earnestly, hoping that He will be merciful. This is only done by the Spirit of God in us, just as it was in them. It is the Spirit of God who brings about this change in us. And this is important to understand because if you have someone who has truly believed upon Christ with true saving faith, meaning that they understand the facts of the gospel, they agree that they're true, and they trust in them. That's saving faith and everything that Christ had done. Now, as the Spirit has caused new life to come within us, the fruit of that faith then is repentance, genuine repentance that is again brought about by the Spirit of God. It is not something that is done within our own selves, in our own power. It is the Spirit of God who brings this about. And this is a blessing of God and a grace of God to be able to do this. So that's why when it comes to even, even not only our justification, but when it comes to our sanctification, that this is and has to be a monergistic work of God. Only God can work within us to bring these things about. Has to be. And when God does the work that every genuine believer receives, this is what occurs, genuine repentance of abhorring the sins that we have done against the Lord our God, of, of humbling ourselves, of, of having a, a heart change in the sense of, of turning from our sins and wanting to do things that are good and well-pleasing unto the Lord and casting ourselves at the feet of Christ for His mercy. That is exactly what, what all the people of God do. With genuine repentance. We grieve over our sins. We are truly sorrowful over our sins, though we still contend with them. That's why when the scriptures, when you look at the scriptures, the very thing that we find is, is not that God has began a good work in us and the rest is up to you, but rather he who began a good work will perfect it. He is the author and he is the finisher of faith so that all the things that are done within the hearts of God's people is all the work of God. Our justification we owe to him. Our sanctification we owe to him. Our glorification we owe to him. This is all the work of God in the hearts of his people. So when it comes then to those who say and rely upon a prayer that they prayed without any change in their life, this is when we, we genuinely come to them and we say, we need to talk. You need the gospel again because no genuine saint of God is left without sanctification. 
None. Again, not because it's contingent upon you, but this is one of the blessings and promises of God to all believers. It isn't anything that you must do, but it is something you will do as a result of God working in you. And so, when you're looking at this whole heresy of today, of of days past, you know, I always wondered, you know, even, even growing up, and perhaps some of you have experienced this too, you know, when you, when you went down to the altar or the stairs, I don't even know what an altar is, to be honest with you. I never saw one. I saw a table, but they would always be like, come down to the altar, and you're like, I don't know what that is, but I'll come to the stairs. And then you pray the prayer. And then they would say, because they said it to me, and I'm sure that you all have heard this too. They say, now, don't ever doubt your salvation because I was a witness that you prayed this prayer. You know how dangerous that is? That's what is being referred to as decisionalism. We got you down here. You prayed the prayer. Now you're good. You made a decision. Now you're good. But there is no genuine calling upon Christ, no genuine trust in Christ, and then the fruit of that being the new life that is in Christ. There's nothing in that. And so when people are told that, that is only making them twice a child of hell. And it's not true. It is not at all true. This is what God does. When God is at work, this is what God does. This is what God brings about. Not people going through motions of things and just trying to appease a holy God. No, God brings about within them, draws out of them, out of the new life that he has granted them. He draws out of them genuine repentance and trust. And it was done through the preaching of Jonah. Now, this is all God's work that he's doing here. Everything that's happening. But we still read in verse 10 that when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared would he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now, it seems as if, on one sense, you know, or rather in one sense, you have Jonah, the Lord saying to Jonah, now go to Nineveh and preach. And, you know, th- this isn't a scenario where the Lord is just kind of sitting back like this going, well, he didn't say all the words I wanted him to, but let's see what happens. Oh, they repented. Oh, great. Now I don't have to destroy them. How wonderful. That scenario don't exist. This is a matter of, of seeing the, how God is a God of order and seeing the means that God uses in order to bring people to faith, which is the proclamation of his word. He ordained and decreed for Jonah to go to Nineveh. He ordained and decreed that they were going to repent through the preaching of Jonah to believe. And as a result of that, the Lord's threat that was to them is not going to occur. This is the same thing that we, that we read of in Exodus chapter 32 and 33 whenever Moses is talking to the Lord and trying to get the Lord not to destroy the people. And then, Lord, you know, we want you to go with us. Okay, I'll go. 
and it seems as if he's trying to wheel and deal with the Lord. But what it's coming down to is this, is that God has threatened judgment, but he did not decree judgment. It is demonstrating to us the, the severity of, of sin and how, how God views it. Is God truly angry with the Ninevites? Absolutely. Just as he was angry with every single one of even his elect people before our conversion. Because he is a holy God and he doesn't look upon sin with favor. But at, 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 in, in the means that he has ordained through the proclamation of his word and working within the hearts of people to bring about true faith and then from true faith, genuine repentance, then he relents from bringing in the calamity because the situation has changed now. Through his sovereign decree, the situation has changed. It's not that he did. He didn't change. He didn't change his mind. The situation changed by his sovereign decree, and therefore, in light of that, he relents from bringing calamity. Really, when it, you know, some translations may say that, that God saw their deeds and, and repented, but that's not the same word that's used of the Ninevites when it talks about them repenting. The word that's used for them repenting is, is to turn from evil to turn to good. But when it uses this word, and this is actually a better word, I'm glad some translations use it, which is relented, this simply means that God decided to act otherwise based on the change of the situation. The change of the people that he brought about in them. Which is no different than it is even for the people of God. Because we read in Romans chapter 1 verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And that is across the board to every single person who, who has ever taken a breath. That is true of even the elect of God until... In God's time, he brings them to faith. So it's not a difficult thing necessarily for us to understand that this is the same situation it was with Nineveh. Now, this is an entire city that is repented. That was a few days prior, pagan and vile. And yet you see what it is that God can do, even in a pagan city. This really should also give us hope, not only to give us a picture of genuine repentance and what God has brought about in the lives of all of his people. This should also give us some hope and encouragement of what God can do. He not only did it here, when it comes to this vile city of Nineveh. But you also seen it, uh, you've seen this somewhat occur even in, within Babylon among some of the kings and the, the professions that they made that affected the whole city. You've seen it in Israel. You see some of the great revivals in Israel, the people turning back to the Lord like under the, the, the kingship of Josiah. Think of the Roman Empire. 
and what God can do. You have 12 men, excluding Judas, bringing in the new guy, and Paul, who turned the known world upside down through the proclamation of the gospel, through the preaching of the gospel. And then as they preach, then the people are taking it, and they're preaching, and they're spreading out. And before you know it, within a span of a little less than 300 years, the Roman Empire is, is, is the, the mass of people in the Roman Empire are identifying as Christians. A once pagan empire who adopted the Greek gods who adopted the pantheon of the Greek gods, now identifies as as the very ones whom they persecuted for a couple hundred years. How does that happen? Because when God sets his mind to do something, there is nothing that man can do to thwart his will. And I say that because even the United States has experienced this to an extent throughout our history. You think of the Great Awakening that were taking places that, that was taking place in the colonies. Even to the even to the extent that I didn't know this, I was listening to a podcast the other day with Dr. James White, but that there was a um, uh, there was a court case that made it to the Supreme Court in the late 1890s, and part of one of the justices' response to the court case itself was identifying the United States as a Christian nation. Now, I'm not talking about making this a Christian nation or what have you. I'm just saying that the influence of the Christian faith was such that one of the justices of, actually the the Supreme Court itself, really, understood this and identified the United States as a Christian nation. Now, we look back and we can see that you know, there were nominal Christians and all of this sort of thing that perhaps lead us to where we are now. But this is something that should give us hope to understand that God can still do whatever he pleases, even in this godless nation that we find ourselves in. And that's why we always hope in the Lord and trust in his word and use and, and put as center the gospel. Because this is the means that God will use to bring people to faith. This is the means that he turned the Roman Empire upside down. And he can do it even now, in our day. But it has to begin with the people of God first. It has to begin with, with us striving to, to honor the Lord in our lives. To, be, to believe his word and, and his word to be affected in us. Not by your doing, but by the Spirit of God working that in us. But we, we have to strive for it as well in the same sense of immersing ourselves in the Word of God. Learning and growing and, and all of that. Learning of the mercy of God and the grace of God and the love of God so that we, we, we go to, to others and we proclaim the, the good news of the gospel. That they see the genuineness in us that God has wrought in us. They really believe what they're saying. And who knows what the Lord may do. But what we do rely on is we don't know what he will do. We know what he can do. 
and we trust that at any time that God chooses, He can have a mighty moving of the Spirit of God to do the very things that none of us can do in ourselves. To change the course of things, if He so chooses. So we rely on the Lord. We rely on the power of the gospel that the Lord can use the gospel to penetrate even the darkest of hearts. In 1689, paragraph 5 of the same chapter, it says, Such is the provision which God hath made through Christ in the covenant of grace for the preservation of believers unto salvation, that although there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, Yet there is no sin so great that it shall bring damnation on them that repent, which makes the constant preaching of repentance necessary. There is no sin so great that it cannot be forgiven by those who truly repent that God has worked in the heart to bring about this repentance. So let us not lose heart over what happens in the nation, but let us use it. The very things that we find going on, let us use it as even greater motivation to, to spread the gospel, to share the gospel, to call people to believe upon Christ and to know that they can receive mercy and grace. Let us not give up so soon yet. There have been many nations within the course of human history that have turned unto the Lord, even after being as vile and pagan as Nineveh. So hope in the Lord. He may, he may not, but we believe that he can. Let's keep that at our forefront and let us use the very things that go on today as a greater motivation uh, and, as, and help to produce in us a greater sense of urgency in order to declare the gospel to those people. Because people are perishing. And we will continue on next Wednesday, entering into chapter 4. If you would please stand with me. <clears throat> Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you once again for your word. And thank you for the great hope that we have in Christ Jesus. That because of him... Grace and mercy was extended to us. That the Spirit of God has brought about new life in us. Father, we don't want to take your, your mercy and grace for granted. Help us to always appreciate what it is that you have done in us. And in the time in which we find ourselves failing and sinning, recognizing the corruption that still resides within us, oh, Father, let us run to you, run run back to the cross, recognizing that you are a God of mercy, you're a God of grace. Then when we, we beat ourselves up because of what sin that we have done, or we beat ourselves up because of our unfaithfulness, we, we're downtrodden because we recognize our, our love for you isn't what it should be. Our service to you isn't. Our worship you worship of you is and our prayer life is not uh, becoming of, of 
a saint of God in our view. Let us remember this, that the Lord Jesus Christ prayed enough, that he himself loved you to the fullest, that he himself worshipped you in spirit and in truth, that he served you faithfully, never once sinning or bringing reproach upon your name, but was absolutely perfect so that his perfection would be credited to us. Let us remember that it's not in ourselves, it's all him. And let that be a great encouragement to our hearts. Father, thank you for the salvation that is only brought about through him, the salvation that is in him. To you be the praise, the glory, and the honor in all things, Holy Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for your attention. You are dismissed.